Well, our scripture reading today is from Luke 15 again. So two weeks ago, we were in Luke 15. Uh, For many Christians, a very familiar passage with the three parables, or the, the one parable really told in three settings of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. And two weeks ago, I wanted to make sure that we looked at those all together because there's an intentionality behind Jesus putting those together and there's a specific question he's answering. But when he gets to the what we commonly call the prodigal son, he goes into much deeper detail than he does about the sheep or the coin. And so there's definitely the primary purpose of that parable, but there's also the secondary purpose of seeing uh, seeing both sons in their their pursuit, really, or their their fleeing from their father, their hatred of their father, and and the father's love and compassion uh, and pursuit of both of those sons. And so, um, as I said two weeks ago, we're going to come back and and just really park on the prodigal son today, and just just unpack that together. You know, if you look at the way the the parables unfold, you've got uh, in the parable of the sheep, you've got one to a hundred, one out of a hundred sheep lost. And so it's just this one percent loss, but then that it increases tenfold uh, to ten percent, one coin out of ten. And then it appears to increase uh, fivefold from there to fifty percent, one out of two sons, but in reality... It increases a hundred uh, tenfold again because it's on one hundred percent of the father's sons are lost, and we will uh, look at that together today. So, if you are able, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is Luke chapter fifteen, beginning in verse eleven. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother... His older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So when we get to this parable, it's not less than the first two parables, but it is so much more than. Uh, In those two parables, it might be slightly shocking that a shepherd would leave 99 sheep in the open country just to pursue one, that he wouldn't rather just cut his losses and be done with it. But everything about this parable, the parable of what I would say is the parable of the two lost sons, Everything about it is supposed to be shocking, especially at least to the original listeners in first century Palestine, in Israel, in a very shame and honor-based culture. Everything about this parable is supposed to shock you into listening from the opening words to the lack of an ending. Do you ever notice that when you read the parable of the prodigal son? That we don't know what happens. How did the older son respond? What what comes next? And we're not told. And it's all, again, intentionally, perfectly laid out by Jesus to force us to say, where am I? Who am I? In this parable, he opens with a father who has two sons. So you expect, or at least they would expect, so father, older son, younger son. That's going to be the order from which you hear from them. So we'll hear from the father first. We'll hear from the older son next. Then finally, we'll hear from the younger son. But as soon as he established a father, an older son, a younger son, everything falls apart in what's expected. The first person we hear from is the younger son. In verse 12, 
He says, give me the share of property that is coming to me. The share of property, in other words, uh, the portion of our family ownership that is coming to me. It's not something that's mine now, but it is coming to me. It's my, I deserve it. It's my in inheritance. Uh, in those days, if you recall, or maybe you don't recall, uh, depending on how many children you had, you would divide your, you would divide your wealth and your land uh, into one more than you had children. So if you had, say, four children... You would divide your land into five portions, and the oldest child would get the double portion. That's what that means in Scripture when it talks about the double portion. So the older child in the four children scenario would get 40% of the inheritance, while the other children would get 20% each. And the expectation was that the older child would then be expected to sort of uh, help the other siblings or, or help things along. So in this situation, it's more than that. So the more children you have, the less impact this request is, but there are only two sons here, which means that when the father dies, he's going to divide his, his property, his wealth, into three portions, and one-third of it belongs to the younger son, while two-thirds will belong to the elder son. This is a costly thing that he is asking for. He is basically saying, I want the blessing, I want the tangible blessing of being your son without any of the trappings of a relationship. I wish you were dead, is basically what the son is saying. I would like to live my life as though you're dead. And of all the ways the father could respond, I mean, just think of all of them. He could have used this as a teaching opportunity. He could have said, son, when your grandfather died, I had to wait till your grandfather died to inherit the land. You too are going to have to wait till I die to inherit the land. He could have, could have thought of appeasing his son. Son, is the allowance that I give you too little? Let's talk about it. Perhaps we could raise that and work something out. Maybe it was an opportunity to... Test his responsibilities. How about this, son? I'll give you a piece of land, a small portion. Let's see how you do with that. And if you do well, we'll see about trusting you with more. He could have responded with what shame and dishonor this would bring on the household. Son, don't do this. This is a disgraceful thing to our entire name, to our name, our household. It's, it's undignified. It's not, it's not how we act. Or he could have been just angry. He could have just said, get out. He does nothing. None of those. We're simply told he divided his property between his sons. Literally, the Greek word is life. He divided his life between his sons. His very source of living, everything that was that made him, the father essentially divides his life and gives a portion to his youngest son. And so let's look at these two sons in order, the younger son first. It doesn't take long for him to confirm any suspicions we might have of him. In the very next verse, in verse 13, not many days later, he packed up all that he had and took a journey into a far country. The son has an internal alienation 
and distance from his father that's brought on by his own hatred. And he now matches it with geographic alienation. He wants to be as far away from his father as he can get. And we're told that there he squandered his property in reckless living. His his bad fortune did not happen to him. He brought it on himself. It wasn't a result of accidents. It wasn't a result of theft. It wasn't a bad business practices. He brought on his own downfall. Some of you have kids. Do you remember like when you're talking to one of your children about some event in their life that in which perhaps they didn't act in the most stellar of ways? But when you ask them what happened, do you ever notice that they are weirdly nowhere in the scenario? Like, there's nothing they did. There's like, well, she did this, and then he did this, and then they did that, and then, I don't know, my foot was on her head. We don't, no one really knows how we got there. It's interesting that this same thing occurs uh, in addicts. Uh, Folks who are dealing with addictions, as they talk to their counselors, and their counselors, when they finally get to a place where they're willing to sort of write out their life story and see the things that have happened in their lives. And often like a trained counselor will say, so is there a common denominator? Is there anything in all of these things that have happened to you over the course of your life that have brought you here? Anything that like that, that there's, they have in common and they'll sit and they'll stare and they're like, no, I don't see anything. And the counselor will say, well, I see something. You. You are a common denominator in all of these things. It's it's so much easier to say, well, this happened to me and this happened to me than to say, I squandered my life in reckless living. But the reality is that you and I are often the major cause of our own downfall. Our choices, or as the Bible calls it pretty bluntly, our sin. See, God wants to be and can only be both Savior and Lord. And many of us, like the younger brother, would love the Savior part and leave the Lord part. I want the blessings, I want the good things that come, but I don't want want to have to listen to you. I mean, I need to be be free. I need to be me. I mean, the blessing comes from just figuring out who I am and fulfilling that. I can't be ruled by some arbitrary God who long ago and in various ways spoke through prophets, but now, for at least a millennia, has been pretty audibly quiet. And that's who you want me to listen to? No, a full life can only be found in satisfying my pleasures, my desires. I have to figure out what makes me happy 
and then pursue that. The son says, give me the blessings, but not the rules, and definitely not the relationship. And then things go from bad to worse, don't they? Verse 14, only after he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, literally, he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. He is not yet brought to his knees. He would rather disassociate with everything, including his nationality. He is tying himself to a citizen of a foreign country. He is choosing identity in this far-off land rather than identity with his father, And this foreign citizen will abuse him, and he will embrace that abuse rather than return to his father. Have you ever been there? Have you ever made a bad decision and thought, this was a bad decision? I mean, I can feel that this was a bad choice. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to double down. I'm going to add to that bad choice three or four or ten more bad choices. Because I think two wrongs do make a right. And if two wrongs make a right, imagine what a pocket full of wrongs could make. And so you just dig deeper and deeper and deeper. Now you might want to know why do I think the citizen was abusive? Uh, Jesus gives us some of the context clues. He sends the guy out. The son has to go out and feed pigs. Like every, every Jewish listener, which is probably close to 100% of his listeners to this story, knows every man, woman, boy, and ch- girl knows that pigs are filthy, disgusting animals. They don't even come close to the dietary allowances for uh, Jewish obedient children. Uh, And he is not only out feeding pigs, he is so destitute that the food of the pigs looks appetizing. Now, you can go home and YouTube what they feed pigs and just decide if you want to just grab a bowl and a spoon and start eating some of that yourself and just think through how hungry do you have to be for that to be appealing to you. And so we're told he comes to his senses. In verse 17, he came to himself. As one older writer put it, want rekindled what his revelry had extinguished. So his need gave life to what all of his pursuit of pleasure had killed and opened his eyes. He says, how many of my father's day laborers 
have more than enough bread, and yet here I am starving to death. And so he, he devises a plan, a plan that we can only assume he rehearsed as he walked home because what he says when he sees his father is exactly what he says in the pig pen while he's planning to see his father. He says, I will go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your day laborers. See, it's less than bondservant that we've talked about here. It's not due loss that he's asking for because a bondservant is even considered part of the family and has protection and care and covenant responsibilities of the, of the, the homeowner. He's saying, just make me a day laborer. I don't even want to, I'm not worth, worthy of living in the house. I will come and go and just earn enough money to be able to live another day. If you would just let me do that. There's no presumption of forgiveness. There's no assumption that any restoration is even possible. Just admission of sin. I did this. I did this. And it's more than just against you, Father. It's not less than, but it's more than. It's I have sinned against heaven and before you. I have sinned right in your face. There's a recognition of cost. I am not worthy to be called your son. I have broken our relationship. I killed this. And so he arose and came to his father in verse 20. But, but, It wouldn't be, well, I'm going to say it anyway, but I know it makes every little boy snicker, but we need like a whole sermon series on the beautiful butts of God. But his father. But while he was still a long way off. By the way, here is a clue that you know that the father's love made repentance possible It wasn't the son's repentance that paved the way for love. Because it says, and again, this is Jesus, the master storyteller, while he was still a long way off. While he was still a far way off. The word is macron, a distance away. And in verse 13, when he leaves, he goes to a macron country. He goes to a far off land. He goes to a distant land. And while he's still far off, while he's still a distant away, he is, the father has no idea what his intentions are. Why is he coming back? What does he need now? What is, it, is it not enough that you've taken a third of my life? You need more of it? He has no idea. He doesn't care. He loves his son He doesn't sit on the porch and think, well, what does this degenerate deadbeat want now? Or, well, this ought to be good. Or, well, I hope he brought knee pads because there is some groveling that is going to be needed before anything happens next. While he is a distance away, his father saw him 
and felt compassion for him. It's this beautiful Greek word that it would be awesome if we just start using it. It's splanchnizomai. It's awful, isn't it? It's splanknen. It, the root of the word is to feel it in your intestines, in his bowels. It's a compassion that's not just, it doesn't just give you a light head and, and, and hair standing up on end or teary eyes. It, his heart jumps to his throat, his stomach falls out. He sees his son and is moved with compassion. He can't not come to his son. And everyone here who has a child gets it. If your child was lost, even lost because of their own stupidity, if your child was gone, if your child was dead and just showed up one day down the street, you're, you would not be able to breathe. You, you would not be able to do anything but run to that child to get him back, to get her back. He runs to the child. It's, it's nothing to us because Virginia's for runners, uh, but it's everything to them. It's the most embarrassing thing an elderly man could do is to run. You have to hike up your skirt, and if you don't remember to cinch it up, you're going to expose yourself. And he doesn't care. He's just running. He's running to his son, and he falls on him, and he embraces him. He says he falls on his neck, and he can't let go, and he's kissing him. His son is filthy. His son smells like pigs. His breath is awful. And his dad can't stop kissing him. Is there a question about the father's love for the son or his joy that his son has returned? The son begins his rehearsed speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father doesn't deny any of that. He doesn't say, oh, no, no, that's not true. But he does stop him. In Greek, literally, the first word is quick. Quick. Get my robe. Go get the best robe and put it on him. The best robe in the house would be the father's robe. Put a ring on his hand. The ring of the house would be the signet ring. This son is not just received back. He's given the full authority of the house now. Put sandals on his feet. Get rid of his poverty. Smother him with my wealth. But this isn't enough. Like the shepherd and the old woman before him, the father must celebrate. Get the fattened calf and kill it. We must celebrate. Why? Because this, my son, the son said, I'm not worthy to be called your son. He says, this, my son, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found, and so they began to celebrate, and wouldn't it be wonderful if that's where the story ended? It's where it should end. Every lover of Walt Disney movies knows this is where you stop the story. This is the happily ever after moment. 
But it's not the primary point of Jesus' tale. It's definitely part of his point. It's at least secondary. Otherwise, why so much detail into the wayward son and the love of the father for him? But we've almost forgotten at this point. We're so filled with joy. We're so brought up to the peak of celebration that we almost forgot there was another son. And perhaps we assume, well, of course, he's in there celebrating. He's popping the champagne bottles. He's telling the DJ what the playlist is going to be. He's there, but he's not. And we learn that though geographically close to his father all of these years, he is as lost as the younger son was. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field, and when he came and drew near and heard dancing and music. And this is the first sign that something's off. Because he hears joy and celebration and happiness in the house and assumes something's wrong. Have you ever been like that? Someone's happy, someone's joyful, and your first thought is, what is their problem? Nobody should be that happy. What's wrong with him? What, what is he hiding, I wonder? What is all this? It's ridiculous. Calm down. Let me give you a, the address of our Presbyterian church. He won't even go in. He doesn't even look for his father. He calls a young servant to himself. What's going on? And he explains, your brother, your brother has come. Your father has killed a fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. And when he learns this, he becomes angry and refuses to go another step. So notice again, this son has an internal alienation and distance from his father that is brought on by his hatred of his father. And it is now matched by a geographic distance and alienation. He refuses to close the gap with his father. He wants to be as far away as he can be. And again, we see the embarrassing love of the father. No father in that time should be pleading with their adult son, please come into this party that I've thrown. Please, won't you please come in? And so we realize the father has two lost sons. If you read all of the part, even from from where the younger son comes to his senses and underline all the relational and familial words, how many times he talks about my father, my father, my father, my father, even the servant talking to the older son, your father, your brother, all of these things. And when the older son begins to speak, he says, look, you. He never calls him father. Look, you. Many years I have slaved for you and have never disobeyed your commands. And yet you've never given me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. And yet when this son of yours devours your property with prostitutes, 
You kill the fattened calf for him. See, where the younger son did not think he could possibly be happy with a Lord, the older son saw that he had a Lord who was a slave master, but did not need a Savior. And many of us will walk away from God because we don't want a Lord. We don't want someone to tell us, stop pursuing your desires. But many of us will walk away from God because we don't need a Savior. Just give me the rules and I will save myself. Just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. The younger son says, give me the blessings, but not the rules, and certainly not the relationship. The older son says, give me the rules, and I'll earn the blessings, and I'm not interested in a relationship. Do you ever feel like God owes you for your obedience? Like you've been doing the right things. You know what you're supposed to know. You believe what you're supposed to believe. You even do, most of the time, what you're supposed to do. And God owes you. Do you believe you've earned God's blessing because of how hard you're working to obey Him and how good a person you are trying to be? You may see Jesus as your helper or your example or your instructor or maybe even your inspiration but you have no need for a Savior. Here are some elder brother lostness symptoms. Do you get angry at God when things don't go your way? Or, because you know you're doing what you're supposed to do, or when things don't go your way, do you get angry at yourself because you know, oh, I missed on that? but you're angry at either God or yourself and things don't go well because obviously you've kept the rules and he's not holding up his end of the bargain or, yeah, you, you broke some of those rules and it totally makes sense why things are hard right now. Are you angry? Do you have a sense of superiority toward younger brothers? Do you have that, well, at least I never... Are you unforgiving? And judgmental? If it were even slightly humorous, I would admit to you all how many times my children have told me how judgmental I am. And they're right. Do you have a joyless, fear-based compliance? Obedience doesn't flow out of a joy in the relationship you have with God, but out of a, well, these are the rules. It's what we do. It's what you're supposed to do. Do you find criticism devastating? Like you're doing what you're supposed to do. You're doing the right things. And then someone comes along. How dare you suggest that I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do? Is it, I mean, nobody loves criticism, Anyone who tells you they love criticism is lying. But is it devastating? Does it freeze you? Are you stuck? Can you, like, I can't even move now because someone isn't as impressed with all of my good as I am. 
Or do you have irresolvable guilt? Do you have this sense of like, at any moment, the other shoe is going to drop because of a thing you did in the past? And I've, I've quoted it before, the, the opening line in The Patriot, I have long feared that my sins would come back to revisit me and the weight of them would be more than I could bear. Is that, could that be a theme on your bedroom wall? Do you have a dry prayer life? It's just, God is just more of a, there's not a, like it's difficult to find the adoration side of prayer. It's just more contractual and, you know, I'm sorry I did this. Please do this. Amen. Isn't the Father's pursuing love amazing? I mean, He is no, there's no less love in His pursuit of His older son than there is in His pursuit of His younger son. Even while His son just says, look you, He says to him, my son. Literally, he says, my child. My child, you are always with me. Everything that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate because this, your brother, was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he is found. Many people look at this parable and say, they like to point out that, you know, the seeking of the lost never happens in the third tale. I mean, yes, the shepherd goes looking for the sheep and the woman goes looking for the coin, but no one goes looking for the lost son. And while I've shown linguistically the whole far away that the father sees him when he's far away, that that that's not true. Also, I think there's more to the missing seeker in this story than that. It's not that the son had to seek the father, but rather the son needed an older brother who would go looking for him. The son needed an older brother who would say to the father, Father, I will go. I will find your lost son. And whatever it costs, I will bring him back safe and sound. Even if it costs me my very life, I will go get your son back for you. Unfortunately, the younger son did not have that kind of brother. But you do. You and I do. The Son of God, who was always with the Father. Everything that the Father had belonged to the Son. Including honor and majesty and glory. And he said to the Father concerning his lost and wayward children, lost because we have taken the goodness of God, and said, I want your blessings, but not you. 
I want the rewards without the relationship. I wish you were dead. All of those lost children, the Son of God said to the Father, I will go. I will seek them out. I will find them. I will search for your lost children and I will bring them home even if it costs me my life. I will bring them home and none that I find will I ever lose again. And some of us are lost because we don't want a Lord. And some of us are lost because we don't need a Savior. But Jesus says, everyone who comes to me, I will not turn away. I will clothe them with my own righteousness. I will make them co-heirs with me. I will turn their poverty into richness. This is the elder brother that we have in Christ. Sometimes we look at the son coming, returning and saying, but there was no cost to his return. But wasn't there? That was part of the problem the older brother had. Everything, literally, the father tells him true. Everything I have is yours. Because a third of it has already been squandered. And so to receive the younger brother back, there is a cost. There's always a cost for forgiveness. The older brother was unwilling to pay that cost. Jesus was fully willing to pay that cost for your forgiveness. I heard one man point out, telling this, preaching on this parable, if we want the rest of the story for the older son, we have only to look at the beginning and remember who, at the beginning of Luke 15, who, who he was addressing. And he was addressing the Pharisees who despised that he ate and drank with sinners. And so in one sense, the end of the parable is the next day, the older brother got up hired a Roman assassin, and had his father killed. Because this is the result of Christ's love for sinners, that he was despised that by those who needed no Savior and eventually crucified. Those are the only two paths to either return to God or seek his death. And know that no matter how you've gone astray, coming back to the Father, you will always feel his love for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Jesus, thank you that you are the perfect older brother. You came in pursuit of us because we are lost. Lost not like foolish sheep and lost not like overlooked coins but lost by because of our own choices and actions and desires lost because we'd rather have our definition of good things in our lives rather than you lost because we think that just given the night the right rules we can keep it all 
Thank you that you are the savior and seeker of both older sons and younger sons. Grant to us that we might fully embrace your love for us, feel your compassion for us, and see the cost of your receiving us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.